Uh, well, welcome along again to Church by the Bridge. Um, if you've not met me, my name's Des. I'm one of the student ministers here. It's lovely to see you, uh, all of you. Um, and uh, it's, the, the, the time you've come in at the moment uh, is the, uh, somewhere in the middle of a series on 1 Corinthians. And we've been going through this for some weeks. Now, at this particular point in time, Paul has been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through various issues in a church in Corinth, in, uh, in Greece. And, uh, and he's been talking about various issues and finally he comes to an issue here which to some extent might seem a bit odd because when we come to these chapters here, when we come to chapter 11, the second half, the Apostle Paul starts talking about table manners. Now, I don't know how you cope with table manners. I don't know if your table manners are impeccable or if you're the kind of person at the restaurant is quite embarrassed when the plate is lifted, there's a neat ring of mess around the plate. That's generally me. Uh, anyone will know from dealing with kids how difficult table manners can be for some people. You know, anyone who's seen them kind of, you know, they've kind of get, they've got an eating disorder. They can never seem to get it into their mouth. It's always sort of all on their face. Uh, one of the ways my parents dealt with it was just by expelling me from the dining room. Uh, when I was eight years of age, I remember my dad, he just snapped one day. He said to my mum, I, just, I can't stand this any longer, because uh, that's how he talks. <laughs> And I, I ate in the kitchen for the next three months. See, if that had happened now, I would have been whisked away to a foster home or something. But, uh, you know, as it is, you know, if people were sensible, I was actually quite happy. I just sort of ate fish fingers and carrot sticks for the entirety of that three-month period. I had excellent eyesight and gained 20 kilos. But, you know, table manners, I found them incredibly difficult. I found them difficult to manage. And of course, one of the problems with kids with table manners is you don't realise why they're important. You don't understand that it's important to keep your elbows tucked in so you don't go knocking other people so they spill things. You don't realise that it's important not to reach over other people so that you, know, you can avoid a mess happening. You don't realise that these little things, or what seem like little things, actually have very reasonable bases, which are actually really about how we get along, both as families and at a table, but more widely as people in society. Now, in this passage, Paul is instructing this church about table manners. Now, in some ways it seems trite, and yet at exactly the same time, there's a good reason for it. Just like us with our table manners, he has good reasons for mentioning them because the table manners of the Corinthian church mask something far more fundamental about how they relate to one another and also to God. Now, if you're a note-taker, there'll be three points uh, I'm very much of the, you know, the, uh, the cheesy school of points, which help you to remember. So the point one, false starters. Point two, the main course. And point three, just desserts. Very cheesy, but hopefully it'll help you remember. So point one, false starters. Verses 17 to 22. Look with me now as we see exactly what he's going on about. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Now, right from the get-go, right from verse 17, we see that Paul is terribly unimpressed with the Corinthian church's table manners. 
In fact, he says of their meetings in verse 17 that they do more harm than good. And we don't need to read on very far, in fact, only verse 18 to see exactly what that problem is. You can see it there. There are divisions among you when they come together as a church, when they meet. There are divisions there. Now, what are those divisions? Well, again, it seems trite, and yet they are bad table manners. Look at me at verse 20 to 21. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Now, to understand this, we need to understand some of the context of where this supper took place. When the church met together, they almost certainly would have met for a communal meal. The Lord's Supper wasn't celebrated in the same way that it is here in Australia generally, where it's part of a ceremony in a church meeting like this. It's much more likely that it happened over dinner, although there was a discreet part of that dinner which was sort of cordoned off as the Lord's Supper, where they broke bread and where they drank wine. And that supper, if you're not familiar with this kind of stuff, is basically just a meal where people commemorate Jesus' death for their sins. Now, at this stage, they've been carrying on like that, but their behaviour has got so bad at these meetings, it's got so bad at these dinners, that they, they say that even though it's technically the Lord's Supper, it can't really be called the Lord's Supper. They've disgraced it to the point where it can't even be given that name. And the reason that it's been disgraced is because of the total inequality between the people who take part in that supper. You can see the nature of that inequality in the second half of verse 21. For as you eat and drink, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Some people have lots to eat and some people don't. Now, why do some people have lots to eat and some people don't? Well, I think the key is in verse 21. Again, but that first half. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. Now, in the original language, it's a bit ambiguous exactly what the Greek means. Now, the NIV here, the translation from which we're reading, reads just as I've read it there. As you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. The picture is of a big spread towards which everyone has kind of chipped in. It's a bring and share dinner. But they, some people are absolutely diving in and hoeing in and gorging themselves, much like I did at sort of university kind of get-togethers. You know, when this was, you know, communal dinners were a major source of nutrition for people like me. So I'd kind of dive in and I'd scoff a lot and then people who weren't lightning quick would miss out. That's the kind of picture that the NOV paints. But it could mean, and I think it probably should mean, something rather different. The ESV, another translation, takes it as, for in eating... Each one goes ahead with their own meal. Can you see the difference there? It's not the idea of the quick and the dead, the person who rushes in, scoffs all the food and there's nothing left. Rather, it's the picture of people who come to dinner but hoard their own meal, not sharing it with anyone at all. They each go ahead only with their own meal rather than sharing it. And I think that makes good sense in the context here. You can see it there in verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You see, the picture here, I think, is of the difference between rich and poor. Rich people who come along with a great spread and tuck in by themselves and poor people who have very little or possibly nothing to contribute at all. 
So when the rich people tuck into their food, their beautiful pate de foie gras and you know, whatever else they happen to be bringing along, and the other person has the Vegemite sandwich, there's an incredible difference and a very obvious difference between the haves and the have-nots. It's humiliating for the person who has nothing. I think it's really the difference between the, the bring-and-share barbecue and the bring-your-own barbecue. I don't know if you've ever been, been to barbecues where each person has to bring their own meal. You know, if you're the Povo uni student, you kind of come along and you do bring along your sandwich and maybe your half-eaten packet of chips. And it's pretty obvious where on the social ladder you stand. Whereas the person who brings along all the stuff they've just cleared out from the deli, your social status is very clear. There's a real division between rich and poor. Far better, isn't it, if you want to smooth over those differences, to have a bring-and-share barbecue where no one knows what anyone brought. Everyone chips into the common pool and everyone eats what they need. That's the problem that I think he's dealing with here. Rich people scoffing their own glorious large meals and humiliating poor people who have nothing, who go hungry while others get drunk. It's no surprise that Paul roundly condemns them. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. How does this apply to us in our church condition here, in our church in Australia? It's difficult to imagine exactly how that might apply to us at the Lord's Supper, simply because the way we celebrate it in modern church contexts never really seems to reflect this kind of New Testament way. People are unlikely to starve because they don't have one piece of bread and one small cup of juice. And that's hardly, you know, kind of the, the, uh, the, the sort of a line they're on when it comes to survival. But I think there are ways that it can apply. I think one of the reasons in churches we think that this kind of passage wouldn't apply is because we all blindly assume that we all have as much money as the other people around us. We all assume that everyone here at church is a university-educated, middle-to-upper-middle-class Anglo-Saxon person. We all assume that we're the same. We all assume we have roughly the same bank balance and hence we don't need to worry about it. But I think you'd be surprised to know just what the diversity of of people's finances here are. There are people in this church who come from all sorts of walks of life. It might not necessarily always be obvious. They might well wear exactly the same clothes as you know, everyone here. You don't sort of see people wandering around in sort of sackcloth and ashes while everyone else, well, other people get around in Dolce and Gabbana. But perhaps one of the reasons for that is that people feel a pressure to conform to a higher standard of living that is generally represented here at this church. There's a wide variety of people here and we need to be loving towards them. So how can we apply it? Well, let's apply it narrowly. Let's just apply it to the issue of food. We're a pretty social bunch here, I imagine. People go out to dinner a lot. And when you go out to dinner, I think it's important to be sensitive to the people around you. If you're going out to dinner, or if I'm going out to dinner with someone who I know doesn't have a great deal of money, and I see something on the menu that I think that looks absolutely sensational but I'm also really conscious that it's at the pricier end of things. And I'm also conscious that the person really wants to be involved in the party and wants to come along, but is going to have to order the entree. Then maybe I should just eat another time, the equivalent of eating my meal at home. If I want that great meal, well, then I should have it another time because I don't want to humiliate my brother or sister and draw an unnecessary division between wealth and poverty. But I think it's also more applicable broadly 
I think we need to be careful as a church not to make people who are less financially well off stand out and so be uncomfortable and humiliated. The way we talk about money out there when we're chatting around over things, I think so often we're used to a certain standard of living to a certain sort of rate of wages that we talk about money in a way that we don't even think about. We talk about the kind of holidays we take or we talk about the kind of cars we buy or what we do with our disposable income, all assuming that everyone has pretty much the same bank balance as me, that all all of us have good jobs and can afford that kind of stuff. Not realising that there might be someone wilting away in the corner there wondering, not only how they're going to go on holiday, but how they're going to pay the rent for the next week. I think we need to be careful about that kind of thing. I think we need to be careful about the way we dress. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that we all come dressed secretly, as I'd quite enjoy, in sort of tracky dacks and old T-shirts. They're the kinds of things I just love to get around, not because I can't afford them, I just love them. They're just so comfortable. And it's certainly not a wrong thing to dress in a fashionable, upmarket way. But there's a difference between fashion and ostentation. And I'm not saying that people would necessarily, I don't actually pay that much attention to fashion, so I don't know if it's an issue or not. But that is something to watch out for, isn't it? That is something to make sure that we're not visibly showing our wealth in a way that is going to make other people uncomfortable. Getaway is coming up. That's going to be a great weekend away, a great symbol and a great time of our unity together as a church. And yet, I know of, I don't know who, but I know there's been some rumblings and grumblings about the accommodation. That it's not quite flash enough. That maybe it would be nice if there were en-suites and kind of more flash accommodation. Now again, I'm not saying that's categorically wrong. You might have good reasons for wanting an ensuite and wanting to stay off-site and not on the campsite with the rest of us. Maybe there are good reasons. But are they your reasons? Or if that's you... Are you just being precious? Because do you see what your comfort and your wealth does to the church? It divides us in two, between the haves and the have-nots, or at least the have-lesses. It's not a helpful thing. And so if that's you and you don't have a good reason, I'd really encourage you just to muck in with the rest of us in the bunk beds and the dorms. But one of the ways that we can get away with this and kind of dealing with the division between rich and poor, one of the ways I find myself often dealing with it, isn't even showing off my wealth in front of poorer people, isn't making it really obvious in front of poorer people that I'm wealthier. One of the ways is just by not socialising with people of a different socio-economic class at all. I just don't hang out with them. At the dinner parties I go to or I invite people around, it's always the people like us who come along and are on the guest lists. It's never people who aren't people like us. It's those kinds of things that I think are important for us to think about. Jesus had so many massive things to say about so many things. You'd never think that he had a word, a piece of specific guidance about dinner parties. And yet listen to these words from Luke chapter 14. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, Do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbours. If you do, they might invite you back and so you'll be repaid. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now at this point, please don't mishear me. I don't think that Paul or God speaking through him or me are trying to guilt trip wealth. Wealth is a fabulous gift from God 
It's a wonderful thing. And I've personally experienced enormous generosity from people within this church who have used their wealth for good means. Now, it's not guilt-tripping wealth, but I think he is guilt-tripping greed. He is saying that greed is wrong, and he doesn't pull any punches on that. And I think he does it for a good reason. Because although on the surface the division in Corinth that he's dealing with here is the division between rich and poor, that division is actually only a surface symptom of an even deeper division. Not between those who are rich and poor, but between those who are approved by God and those who are not. Look with me at verse 18 again. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Paul here sees the divisions between rich and poor, some people hogging all the food and some people having nothing, as a natural thing. That there will naturally in churches be people who are approved by God and those who aren't. Now I should say, I don't think he means here people who are damned and people who are saved. I think these are rather people who are self-centred Christians rather than God and other people-centred Christians. But it does give us pause for thought, doesn't it? Poor people, if we treat them badly, will be humiliated by us. But we, if we treat them badly, will one day be humiliated in front of God, not approved by him. As I was preparing for this sermon, it was the most sobering thing that came to mind. But why is this such a serious matter? Well, that leads me to a second point, the main course. And you see it there in verse 23. For, you can see that he thinks that this is following on, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, Paul here, to give the explanation for what he's been talking about, these meals and why they're so unsatisfactory to God because of the divisions, he goes right to the heart of the issue and he describes the meal that they're actually having, the Lord's Supper. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the Last Supper of Jesus' last meal with his 12 disciples. And the Last Supper was itself a commemoration of a Jewish festival, the one we looked at in Exodus chapter 12. And that, that, that Passover festival celebrated God's rescue of Israel out of Egypt. Now, when Jesus comes with his 12 disciples to, to share that meal, he radically reinterprets what has gone on there. And so you can see there in the verses, verses 24 and 25, he reinterprets the parts of the meal. So in the Passover meal, they would have broken bread. And they would have broken bread and probably eaten lamb as well. The bread is probably just representative of the entire meal. And that is a memorial of the fact that a lamb was slaughtered and had its blood daubed on the lintels of their houses so that the angel of death would pass over and not take them. In other words, it's a memorial of God's salvation. It's a memorial of God's saving grace for them. But now you see Jesus radically say in verse 24... He breaks the bread which for hundreds of years, thousands of years, Jews had recognised as being a symbol of God's lamb, of God's salvation. He breaks the bread and he says, this is my body which will be broken for you. 
And then when he takes the cup, probably the fourth cup in the Passover meal, which symbolises the blood that was spilt by the lambs, understood by that by Jews for hundreds of years as that, he takes that cup and he says, this is my blood which will be given for you. And where the Jews had been told before to carry on this feast as a memorial of what God had done for them in the Exodus, Jesus now says, take this Passover meal, take this bread and this wine, but now don't do it in memorial of the Exodus. Do it in memory of me. Do it in memory of what I am going to do. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection are the true Exodus. They are the true Passover. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to take the blame for all the sins, all the things that we've done to God, all the times we've rejected him and said to him, no thanks, I'm not interested in what you have to offer me. I'm not interested in obeying you. I don't want to obey your commands. I want to go my way. And which rightfully deserve God's anger and wrath. And yet God, in his incredibly lavish mercy, says, you don't have to go through that. You thoroughly deserve my punishment. You thoroughly deserve everything I could give you. And yet I will give you my only son, Jesus. I've only got one of them, but I'll give him for you. And I will break his body and I'll pour out his blood. And taking out my wrath on him, he will have paid your debt. So that only if you remember that and put your trust in that, you need not die, but rather can live forever. And so Jesus tells his disciples to remember that. And so Paul tells the Corinthians to remember that as well. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a toast. It's a toast. Until he comes. The charged glass. Until he returns. In England, with James II in 1688, he was forced to flee the throne up to Scotland where he had his supporters. And every time his supporters met together in Scotland when he had had to flee from there to Europe, they ended each of their meetings with this toast to the king over the water until he comes. And that's the Lord's Supper. To the king not over the water but to the king in heaven who died for us, shed his blood for us, had his body broken for us until he comes. That is the Lord's Supper. A toast to our king not yet with us, but soon to return. So what has that got to do with table manners? Well, Paul explains for us. Look in verse 27. Therefore, we know the crux is coming because he's given that word, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. You see, that's why it's important that they not be divided. Because the very nature of the meal is reminding them of the unity that God has won for them on the cross. 
when they come together to break the bread and drink the wine, they're commemorating what Jesus has done for them. That they can be one people, united with God and united with one another. And so to eat it, whilst maintaining divisions among them, while racing ahead with their meals, pretending that the poor don't matter, even though Christ died for them, is the most blatant hypocrisy. And so he slams it. And that's why he warns us, as he does in verses 28, examine yourself. Examine yourself to see if we are recognising the body. And the body of the Lord here is not the bread and the wine. When Paul mentions that, he always calls it the body and blood. That's the, the formula he uses to talk about the elements in the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the wine. No, the body here is the church. The body here is the church, the group of people that God has gathered together through faith in his son, through faith in what he's done on the cross. You can see that there in chapter 10, verse 17. He talks about, well, verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. The body is the church. And we come to celebrate. When we come to celebrate what has brought that church together in the Lord's Supper, it is rank hypocrisy for that body to be divided. Let man not separate what God has brought together. It fits just as well in a church service as it does in a wedding. And there are consequences if you don't. You can see them there. People are getting sick as a result of this. That could be sick from the stress that divisions cause or it could actually be, and I suspect it is primarily, supernatural punishment. God punishing people for ignoring those around them. You see, the cross has brought great unity, hasn't it? It's brought great unity across economic divides, across racial divides, across social divides, across personal divides. Come and celebrate with us. At eight o'clock, when we come to have the Lord's Supper together, come and celebrate that enormous unity that God has won for us together. And not just unity with one another, but unity with him. It's a remarkable meal. It reminds us in startling detail of the lengths towards which God went to reconcile us with him and to reconcile ourselves to each other. Come along and celebrate. It'll be at eight o'clock afterwards. But if you do want to come along and celebrate, examine yourself. I need to examine myself. I need to examine myself to see if there are divisions amongst this body here at Church by the Bridge. We're a group of people. We're not all going to like each other. We're not all going to get along. That is inevitable. But there is a real difference between not getting along and being in hardened disunity against one another. If you're in hardened disunity with someone, I would invite you not to take the Lord's Supper. I would invite you to sit by or quietly slip out, that's fine, much better than the consequences of here. Or, if possible, fix that disunity. 
That might not. That might mean even taking someone aside now before and trying to patch things up. It might mean still taking it, knowing that to patch it up beforehand will be impractical, but fully committing yourself to fixing it afterwards because otherwise to eat and drink the body of the Lord would be hypocrisy. This might just be the spur to finally make you make that extra step to fix that problem. Because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the glories of God's goodness to us in Christ through what he has done to bring us into unity with God and to bring us into unity with one another. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your astonishing goodness to us that you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to be broken and poured out for us so that we might be right with you. We pray that we might tonight, at all times, but particularly tonight, feel the weight of that fact, that whether we like it or not, we are united with each other. Please help us to act in a way that reflects that. Please help us not to pretend that rich and poor within this church are not part of one body, but that we are in fact united with each other. Please help us to think hard about how we can love our brothers and sisters rather than humiliate them. But more broadly, please help us to heal divisions more generally across our church so that we might truly toast you saying, until he comes with a clear conscience, knowing that we've examined ourselves and will not come under judgment. And we ask all these things through Jesus Christ and because he's made it possible. Amen.